You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. In his book, and I think this is an older book by now, but uh, John Piper in his book, Risk is Right, says this. I define risk very simply as an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. If you take a risk, you can lose money, you can lose face, you can lose your health or even your life. And what's worse, if you take a risk, you may endanger other people and not just yourself. Their lives may be at stake also. Will a wise and loving person then ever take a risk? Is it wise to expose yourself to loss? Is it loving to endanger others? Is losing life the same as wasting it? It depends. Of course, you can throw your life away in a hundred sinful ways and die as a result. In that case, losing life and wasting it would be the same. But losing life is not always the same as wasting it. What if the circumstances are such that not taking a risk will result in loss and injury? It may not be wise to play it safe. And what if a successful risk would bring great benefit to many people and its failure would bring harm only to yourself? It may not be loving to choose comfort or security when something great may be achieved for the cause of Christ and for the good of others. Why is there such a thing as risk? Because there is such a thing as ignorance. If there were no ignorance about the future, there would be no risk. Risk is possible because we don't know how things will turn out. This means that God can take no risks. He knows the outcome of his choices before they happen. That is what it means to be God over and against all other gods of the nations. And since he knows the outcome of all his actions before they happen, he plans accordingly. And and I would just add, and and Piper does teach this, I just don't think you catch it here in this specific uh, passage of the book, but it's not only just that he has planned the outcome, uh, or that he knows the outcome, but he knows the outcome because he planned the outcome. That he has determined everything that would be. He is completely sovereign over everything. Nothing is that he is not predetermined. And, And so... He knows the future because he has planned the future. So just, again, to add that little tidbit there. But he goes on to say, His omniscience, and I would add sovereignty, rules out the very possibility of taking risks. But not so with us. We are not God. We are ignorant. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. God does not tell us in detail what he intends to do tomorrow or five years from now. Eventually, God intends for us to live and act in ignorance and in uncertainty about many of the outcomes of our actions. You don't know if your heart will stop before you finish reading this page. You don't know if some 
oncoming, oncoming driver will swerve out of his lane and hit you head on in the next week. You don't know if the food in the restaurant may have some deadly bacteria in it. You don't know if a stroke may paralyze you before the week is out or if some man with a rifle will shoot you at the shopping center. We are not God. We do not know about tomorrow. And I think I read this passage, even though it's a, it's a long quote, I, I apologize for that, but I, I think it was worth reading through. I, I think what we see that Piper is getting at here echoes what we've read so far in Ecclesiastes and what we see here today. Life is fleeting and full of unknown. None of us knows when our lives will end. And that very truth compels the preacher here in Ecclesiastes to instruct his readers to live. Live now. But living comes with risks. We cannot live risk-free lives, though many of us try. If we live, there will be risks. But can we trust our lives to our sovereign God who does not take risks? Because all that is and has been and ever will be, he has preordained to be for his purposes. So can we live even though living is risky, trusting ourselves to God. As Ken took you through chapter 10 last week in my absence, which I'm very grateful for, he showed from the text the contrast between wisdom and folly, wisdom's fragrance and the stench of folly, right? And how just a little folly, a little sin, can ruin one's fragrance, can ruin one's reputation, Wisdom and folly, they do not run along the same track. One goes to the right and one goes to the left. And so you saw the contrast between the two. And so then now as we come to chapter 11, with the distinction made between wisdom and folly, and having covered the need for wisdom in life's uncertainties in chapter 9, here we see the preacher now calls his audience to be wise in light of the fact that life is so uncertain. And then in, we see that in verses 1 through 6. And then as he continues on in verses 7 through 10, we see that we are to enjoy life as God has given for it to be enjoyed. And so with that said, let's read through our passage here this morning. Again, Ecclesiastes chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb for a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. 
but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So as we we think about these verses here, and specifically here focused to begin with on verses 1 through 6, we have to understand that just because there might be risk in something we are doing does not make what we're doing wrong or bad. Just the the nature of not knowing the future, as Piper pointed out, uh, of life being so full of uncertainties means there's going to be a degree of risk no matter what we do in everything. And being willing to take the risk is often simply acknowledging that God is the one in control of life, and not me, and not you. We've seen God's control over all things in life going through this study. God is the one who has determined the seasons and the times for our lives, as we saw in chapter 3. We saw in chapter 7 that as long as God has for us to remain here on this earth, both good and bad are before us, and we don't know what we'll experience next. And what you think a right person should get in, a righteous person should get in this life, often he doesn't. And what you think an unrighteous person should get in this life, often he doesn't. Very often things don't turn out the way we think they should, the way we would expect them to in this life. And we saw in chapter 9 that we have to acknowledge that life is in God's hands. And so we should live while we can. And we discuss what it means then to live there in chapter 9. Enjoying the things God has given us to enjoy. Fulfilling the responsibilities God has given us to fulfill. And so then as we come to chapter 11 here. Again, verse 1 says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. And I think here we see an example of what risk looks like. This is something that's risky. Saying cast uh, bread upon the waters, it refers to participating in commercial trade uh, in the anticipation that it will pay off. And so as grain and wheat and bread would be put on ships and and part of trading with others, this is what it's, it's referring to. And the idea here is wise investments. Now, is there any investment that is a guarantee? No. But there are wise ones that someone can take, as opposed to foolish investments. And there can be wise ways to invest. For example, we see in verse 2, it says, Give a portion to seven or even to eight, which is the idea that you do not put all your eggs in one basket. That if you... Invest, spreading out among diverse opportunities, then that is a wiser way to invest and a wiser way to move forward where there is risk. For, as we see at the end of verse 2, it says, You know not what disasters may happen on earth. So, in other words, you don't know the future. So be wise, be prepared for whatever could happen. 
If you put all your investments in one portfolio, you could risk that company going under due to natural disasters, due to, due to bad management, due to corruption, due to uh, so many different things that for you and I would be unforeseen. So by spreading out your investment, even if one or two things go under, or three or four things go under, you still haven't lost everything. And so when there's risk, and we live our lives with risk, and we don't know how things are going to turn out, this is not saying that then because of risk we just are reckless. No, we're still to be wise in how we live our lives and move forward. But recognizing we still don't know what the outcome would be. So we cannot get away from risk. But again, with risk, there's still a call for wisdom. So we invest, we invest the opportunities that we have, and we can only get out of something what we put into it. And even now at this point, I'm not even talking about the stock market or business ideas or things like that, uh, but in general, in everything. Invest in the opportunities God has given you and the resources he has supplied. Give of yourself in service, even if it means risk. Listen, even as we serve each other here, we invest our gifts and our talents and working together in our time, there's risk in that. Uh, uh, Maybe someone might not respond to us the way we expected them to or the way we hoped they would, and maybe there could be a risk of hurt feelings or something like that. Still, we should invest. We should be wise in what we do and how we serve each other, but we should not hold back from each other because we're afraid of how things may turn out. We give of ourselves. We give, take the opportunities God has given. We trust ourselves to our God, being wise in light of the fact that we don't know the future. Commentator Ian Proven says this, Kohelet, and remember, Kohelet is the preacher who I have argued is Solomon. Kohelet is inviting his readers to embrace a certain way of looking at the world. They are to take a long-term view of life, which accepts the good with the bad. They are to visit, they are to sit loose to their lives and their possessions, not becoming too attached to them. Certainly such a view of life should affect both business practices and everyday relationships. And I think he's right. Now, though, what's the problem of thinking this way? Again, I think we've already pointed that out. The problem of thinking this way and living and taking risks leaves us mere humans without any control. And let's face it, some of us are maybe what you'd call control freaks, right? Some of us. But all of us in some way or another feels like we we want to do something to gain control of all the happenings in our lives around us, right? We can all relate to that. But the truth is, no matter what we try and do to have control over our lives, any control that we feel that we have is really just an illusion. We really don't have any control at all. You and I have to recognize only God has control. And we're not him. We have to trust all things to God's sovereign control. When life is chaotic, when life is painful, 
confusing and scary. The best thing we can do is admit that we have no control and therefore commit to trusting ourselves to our sovereign Lord. We see there in verse 3 that storms will come. Things will happen that we can't control or do anything about. Things will happen and we don't know what the turnout is going to be. Like when a tree falls, it's going to fall to the the north or to the south and wherever it falls, it's going to lay right there. And that's just how it is. Things in life will happen whether we like it or not. So all we can do is live with wisdom that comes in the fear of the Lord. So again, that does not mean then do nothing. Wisdom doesn't mean don't take any risks. Wisdom doesn't mean shelter yourself in uh, until things seem okay and and there's less chaos and there's less danger. That's not what wisdom calls for. If we do that, we'll end up never doing anything. Uh, Look at verse 4. He says, Who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Again, if you just lock yourself in, waiting for conditions to be favorable, to have no risks, you'll never live. And you'll end up just wasting this life that you've been given. And we've already seen in Ecclesiastes that that's not really an option for us. Life is too short for us to do nothing, for us to waste our opportunities. That we have been put here for a purpose, and ultimately that purpose is to glorify our God in our living, in what we do, in our circumstances. Now, I know we haven't mentioned it in a bit going through this series, but if you remember uh, the scriptural truth that we've gone over that is accurately relayed to us in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. In the first question that's asked in the Catechism, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that starts now. That's not just when we're in heaven with Him. That's not just in the new new heaven and new earth. That starts now. And so now we have to live. Now we have to act. You must live trusting our God who is sovereign. Not just sovereign. Or Stuart Scott talking about, he's specifically talking about in counseling, talks about that if you just tell your counselee that God is sovereign, God is sovereign, you're not really helping your counselee. If you just isolate one attribute of God apart from the rest, no, we need to look at who God is. God is not just sovereign. God is righteous. He is good. He is merciful and gracious. This is the God who is holy, 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 meaning that he is holy to the upteenth degree. That is the God who is sovereign. That is the God who we are to entrust our lives to in everything. So that no matter what happens, no matter what comes into our lives, we trust in him who always does what is good and what is right. Always. In everything. We can trust him even if we do not understand why something has happened. We can trust him if we don't understand how everything works together 
and how they are driving to the end of, of what is right and good. We can trust him. And Solomon illustrates this in verse 5. Now, as we, we look at verse 5, it's a little difficult to translate. And you see that if you compare different translations. As the English Standard Version has it, the preacher could be referring to how the human spirit comes to be in the physical body of a child who is developing in the womb. The Hebrew word for spirit can also be translated as breath. And so how does the breath come to the bones that are developing in the womb, as the child, again, developing there? Or possibly there could be two distinct things in view as well. Uh, the word for breath or spirit could also be translated as wind. And so we don't know the path of the wind, as the Christian Standard Bible has it, or, or how the wind blows, as the, the New American Standard Bible, or the NIV 84 has it. And so in this, Solomon, speaking to his readers, his readers would not know how a baby is developed in the womb. Uh, even for us today, for all that we do know about the development of the child in the womb. With all of our technology, there's still stuff we don't know. And this refers to the spirit developing as well, the spirit in the body. You know, there's some theological debate on even how that takes place, and, and does procreation also create the spirit and all those things, and which is where I am on that. But still, there's such a mystery to that, even still. There's so much we don't know. But however this is translated, Solomon's point is crystal clear. Just as there are workings of God in his creation that we do not know, we do not understand, we don't even know why for everything, so too in God's working in the world and in our lives, through whatever his providence does and brings into our lives, we can't see all that God is doing. We can't understand all the reasons why. We're so finite. We cannot see how everything fits together and affects everything else. How tragedy in one life may turn that person's life. How victories may affect others. We don't know how it all comes together, how it all pieces together. We can only trust God and his providential working working his good in everything in our lives. Even when we can't understand, even when it seems that before us is nothing but risk, we can trust him. And so trusting him, we are to live, live seeking wisdom, live to fulfill the responsibilities that he has given us, leaving the outcome for everything to God. And I think that's what verse 6 is getting at here. God has made us responsible for what he has given us to do in this life. And we're to entrust the outcome to him as we fulfill those responsibilities, even though we don't know the outcome. He says there in verse 6, you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. You do not know. You're not the one in control. Just trust the one who is in control. Fulfill the responsibilities he's given you in this life. I'm not in control of my life, no matter how much I want to be in control of my life. But we can all trust and so obey the God who is in control. As we fulfill the responsibilities he's given us, as we trust his working 
in our lives in everything. And if you and I are sitting here today, and our faith is in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, that we're dependent upon Him and His work to forgive us of our sins and make us right before God, then we know that God is working everything out for our good, which is to make us like Christ, to grow us in holiness for His glory. Right? That's Romans 8, 28 through 29. We can trust that good in everything, even when we don't understand. And what's the alternative? I mean, what else can we do but trust our God who is sovereign, holy, and good? Well, I guess we can spend our days in anxiety, worrying and fretting about everything, right? I guess that's an option, but that's not the Christian life. Plus, what does Jesus say about that? In Matthew 6, he says we are not to be anxious. We're not to worry about our lives, right? In Matthew 6, verses 26 to 27, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Listen, God cares for all of his creation. How much more does he care for you whom he made in his image? And again, if we're sitting here today, trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we can push that further. How much more does he care for you that he bought at a price, the price of the blood of Christ? How much more does he care for you who he has adopted as his own child, that he has chosen before the foundation of the earth, as we read in Ephesians 1? Do we not trust our great and awesome God? So why worry when you know the God who is sovereign, righteous, good, and holy is in control? All worry will do is, is keep us from living. Living as we've been called to by the scriptures. And by worrying, can we add Again, any span to our life? Can we make ourselves live longer in our worry? No, if anything, really, we know that worry is actually detrimental to our health. We are to trust God in everything, living even as Solomon calls for us to live in light of life's fleeting nature. Life is short, and God has given us responsibilities to fulfill which worry will distract us from. And worry can, can keep us from enjoying what God has given us to enjoy in our short, fleeting life. Which leads us into the next section here in Ecclesiastes. Verses 7 through 10. Life is short. As we've already seen, death is a joy kill, or killjoy, excuse me. So we should live enjoying life while we can, as God has given things in life to be enjoyed. Now, as we look at verse 7 here, I think we see Solomon's optimism coming out. Again, so much of the book seems pessimistic. So many things that he talks about is very pessimistic how he talks about it. But we know that Solomon is optimistic about God, about those who fear God. He's very optimistic about, about that. 
And as we've seen him talk about the despair of life on one hand, yet we've seen him discuss the joys of life, and yet discuss how death comes and steals all that away. He's also discussed how uh, the living have it better in the sense that uh, when you're dead, you can't then turn and begin to fear the Lord. Uh, But it's only the living that are called to repent. As we look here, verse 7, we see the preacher is saying, and if we could put it in, in a modern way, it's good to be alive. It's good to be alive. And when we understand what God has given us in this life, when we recognize the opportunities in fearing the Lord and living for His glory, yes, life is hard, fleeting, and uncertain. But by God's grace, we can have joy. And He has given good gifts meant to be enjoyed in their proper place. A light in this verse uh, refers to the joys of life, while seeing the sun refers to being alive which Solomon says is a pleasant thing. And then we read this in verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him enjoy in them, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. And so I, I think we see a balance here. Life is worth living and has joys that are sweet but darkness is coming, the day of death will arrive. And with the finality of death, you'll spend more days in the darkness of death than seeing the sun than you will living under the sun. And again, Solomon has already pointed to death as as the ultimate killjoy. Death steals away any gain that we've had in this life, any material gain or what we've had from working or, or any pleasure we've sought. So, as death is coming, one should live as they can, while they can, enjoy the joys of life in their proper place, not as, not in the place of of ultimate fulfillment, but as God has intended them, we should enjoy them, knowing death is coming, and when it does, it will, everything will mean nothing, because we'll see how empty everything is, because everything is fleeting. It cannot be held on to. And so, in light of that, then, as we continue, we see Solomon gives a warning to the youth. Youth, who, generally speaking, you may be sitting here as youth saying, that's not me, okay, I get that. But in a general sense, uh, youth often feel that they are invincible, untouchable, and indestructible, while often lacking the maturity to not allow every whim of emotion and desire lead them every which way. That was true of my life. And if you're going to let your desires and impulses guide you, Solomon says here, go ahead. Go ahead. Enjoy life. Uh, Go with every impulse. Do what pleases you. Seek out that pleasure. But, and this is a big but, But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. We are to enjoy life, but enjoy as God has given enjoyment. 
We are to enjoy what God has intended us to enjoy in the manner and proper place of life that he's given it to be enjoyed, which means we are to be led by every emotion and every impulse that we have. We're not to live recklessly in our pursuits of joy and pleasure, and so abandon restraint and live in sin. Once again, you and I, sitting here today, who are trusting in Christ for our, as our Lord and Savior, you and I, then, have been given the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit working in us, who has written God's law in our hearts, empowering us to live for God's glory, empowering us to honor Him. And in that, we see the, what is contained in the fruit of the Spirit, what, what the Spirit produces in our lives, as we see in Galatians 5, is self-control. We're to have self-control. There are impulses and emotions and desires that are outside of God's will for our lives that we are to say no to. And we're to buffet our bodies and destroy, seek to destroy the evil that remains in our flesh, the sin that still abides. And listen, if this is Solomon writing at the end of his life in repentance, which I've argued, then to give into your impulses and your emotions and let them lead you every which way is exactly what Solomon is repenting of. And even if some argue that this is not Solomon, still, with everything we've read through Ecclesiastes, it is very clear that a life that is lacks self-control, and goes after every desire in the seeking of pleasure is not what the preacher calls for. But instead, throughout this study, we have seen the call to live in the fear of God. And that's what we're to do. To not just live merely under the sun with God out of the picture, but we're to live for the honor and glory of our great God. But to understand true satisfaction, living, knowing God's provision and what he has given us to enjoy, takes enjoying them in their proper place. Not putting those enjoyments and seeking of pleasure in the place of God as if those things will, will bring us ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment. No, only God can bring us ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment. We must look to him. We are ultimately to understand that everything in this life is empty because it's fleeting. It can't be held on to. And so we are to live in faith and obedience, knowing true satisfaction is a gift from God. And so joy and pleasure is to be sought out within the boundaries God has set up in his holy law, in his moral code of right and wrong. And therefore, in view of that, in understanding the, how fleeting life is, the call for youth is to not make too much of your youth. Sure, take advantage of your youth while you are young, because your youth is not going to last. But keep that too in perspective. So certainly don't waste your youth by being troubled and weighed down by all the worries of life or by engaging in evil ways that will hurt you. Don't do that. Because your youth, not to mention your life, is 
fleeting. So live fulfilling the responsibilities you've been given. Live enjoying what God has given you to enjoy all to God's glory. And take advantage of your youth in that way. Now, let's say you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I'm not really counted among the youth. I don't know who would be thinking that. But let's just roll with it. What should you take from all of this? Well, again, live while you can. Take the opportunities you have in this life that God has given. Live each day that God has decided to give you by his grace in the fear of the Lord. And so fulfill what God has given you, the responsibilities in your life. Because from the oldest one in here to the youngest one in here, none of us are promised our next breath. So live while we still have breath to please and honor our great and awesome God. But even before we try to do that, we need to get our, our, our motivation for that in line too. I mean, why would we try to live to honor? Why, wouldn't we, why do we care about what's fleeting? I mean, I got, I got to live now, right? Seize the day. That's what, that's what we're told in the world. And just do what pleases you. Why, why does it matter that we seek after God? Sure, God's in control, but I, I really just want to have fun. What, what's the motivation here to find my fulfillment and, and satisfaction in God? It's the heart that's been changed to recognize that God is the only one that can fulfill us in this life, that God is the only one who is worthy of us seeking and finding our satisfaction in him. That takes the changed heart. That takes new spiritual eyes that are not blinded by the God of this world. It takes being saved. And so first, before we seek after any of this, we need to understand we need to recognize that all of us have sought pleasure and enjoyment outside of the boundaries that God has set by his law. In many ways, we have lived in opposition to God's holiness. We have not put God first in our lives. We have taken his name in vain. We have not given God the honor that is due him. We have not loved God as his law calls us to love him. And we have not loved others. We've lied. We've stolen We've been lustful. We've been full of unjust anger and hateful. All of us are guilty. And we have to recognize, as Solomon warned the youth, we have to know that for all these things, God will bring us into judgment. And God, as a holy and just God, will bring his judgment on all lawbreakers. And his eternal wrath will be satisfied either in you for all eternity, to only know his wrath, to pay for your sin against his infinite holiness, or for all who believe on Jesus Christ for salvation, turning from their sin, will find that Jesus, God the Son, was the satisfaction for their sins in his sacrifice on the cross. Having lived the perfect life, he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for all that he saves. His satis he satisfied God's wrath in his own body. He died the death we deserve. And God the Father showed that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice on behalf of sinners by raising him from the dead. 
this de- declaration of Christ's lordship and divinity, that he is alive. And he is your Lord, your risen Lord, who commands that you repent, turn from your sins, and turn to Jesus Christ by faith, trusting in Jesus alone to save you. And you will be saved. And he will give you of his spirit. And his spirit will write his law in your heart. He will change you from the inside out, changing your desires, giving you eyes to see the worthiness of God, the greatness of God as he reveals himself in your word, as the spirit applies his word to you. We can live to please our great God, to glorify him in this life, motivated by his grace to fulfill all that the preacher calls for here in Ecclesiastes. I mean, who wants to come to the end of their life and look back and say, man, that was just a waste? I, I was given the opportunity to live for infinitely greater things, and I chose the lesser thing, the infinitely lesser thing. We live for God's glory to fulfill the responsibilities he has given to us, to enjoy what he has given us to enjoy, again, all for his glory. In living this way, is there risk? Yeah, there's risk. From our perspective, not knowing how things will turn out, In every decision we make, risk is a reality, but we can trust ourselves to our good and holy and sovereign God. Can we live trusting him and obeying him, living for his glory? You know, thinking about this, what would motivate us to live for him, motivate us to to entrust ourselves to him, not knowing how things will turn out as we pursue to fulfill the responsibilities he's given and enjoy what he's given us to enjoy. Sometimes those things seem in conflict with each other. I'm going to lose out on, on what he's given to enjoy if I take these risks. If I, sometimes we see obedience to him as a risk, and to be fair, it is. I think of the pastors in Canada now with this law that's been passed that's going to restrict them from calling others to repentance. And there are already some states that have passed similar laws. And again, I heard that in Lafayette, Indiana, of all places, I haven't heard an update, but they're at least pushing for the same law in Canada to, to pass. Where we cannot stand on what the Bible defines as, as right and holy sexuality. And an attempt to call anyone to repent of a lifestyle that is against God to proclaim the gospel to them in Canada is outlawed. And so for pastors to stand and say, no, we're going to preach the gospel, guess what? There's risk there. How's that going to turn out for them? We don't know. And I think we'd be foolish to think that it may not come here where to obey God is going to bring risk to us. But what will motivate us to be willing to take those risks? Motivate us to entrust our lives to our sovereign, holy God. Motivate us to fulfill our responsibilities and enjoy what he's given us to enjoy in whatever circumstances that means. That we look to Christ, we preach the gospel to ourselves. We remember the eternity as he has purchased for us, that we are here to glorify God and enjoy him forever.
And each one of his saints, each one that he has saved, will do that, will honor, will glorify him, enjoy him forever, forever. Think of what he has purchased for you, forever. That's where the motivation for all this comes in as we preach the gospel to ourselves, as we know our, our eternal state is secure in Jesus, in that, yes, this life is fleeting, so let's live for his glory now. Let's honor him now. Let's obey him now. Let's, let's, let's fulfill what he's given us to live now. And knowing that, though death is, is coming, life is fleeting, our eternity is with him. And that should motivate how we live now, how we think now, how we trust him now, even as we take risks now. That we would not waste our life, that we would not waste our youth and our opportunities. But glorify God now. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.